If you're a visitor with us, this is the part of our service where we open the scriptures each week. We open them so that we might hear God's word to us and orient our lives and shape our lives and our hearts and thoughts to God's word and, and allow this to influence the way that we think, believe, live. As we do that, this summer we're in a series called We Are Jonah. We've been preaching through the biblical book of Jonah, the story of the prophet Jonah, and trying to hear what God might be saying to us, to our church, for the sake of our city. If you're new here, let me just get you caught up on the story of Jonah in case that's new to you. Um, it's a story where there's God who has this enormous heart of mercy and compassion for a very wicked and vile and evil and sinful and godless and pagan city. It's this terrible city. We're talking 700 BC, most notorious of all its um, other cities in the world, just a, a, a wicked place. And yet God has mercy on this city and so sends a missionary, a prophet, a man with a message of God's mercy named Jonah. Except God calls him to go east and Jonah hates Nineveh, wants nothing to do with Nineveh. And so Jonah runs a thousand miles in the opposite direction, towards west. He's on a ship, he's headed for this place called Tarshish. And God, like a father going after his son, pursues Jonah sends this great storm Jonah's way until Jonah is hurled overboard. He's sent into the sea and now he's sinking to the bottom like a lead weight. Water is filling his lungs, filling his stomach. He's drowning, dying. And as his life is sort of ebbing away, blacking out, his life is passing, suddenly God saves him. And God saves him in a very unexpected way, sends this great fish to swallow him whole. And for three days and three nights, Jonah spends his days in this submarine underneath the water, spared by God. When we last saw the story, he was spit back onto the land in chapter 2, verse 10. And then we picked it up in chapter 3 last week. If you were here last week, we introduced the city that Jonah was sent on mission to, the city of Nineveh. We said that in chapter 1 and 2, we were introduced to some of the major players and characters in the book of Jonah. So we saw God, we saw Jonah the prophet, and last week we took a good long look at the city that Jonah was sent on mission to. And one of the things that we said is where our tendency is to be isolated and insulated from the city, where, where we've got my family, my church, my people in mind and do not care for the city, that much like Jonah, the city could be going to hell and we really don't care. God's heart is altogether different. We saw that God's heart loves the city, that God longs for the city. In fact, that God sends his messengers into the city to seek the peace, the shalom, the welfare of the city. In fact, one of the things that we said last week was that God has appointed the very place and time that you live. We looked at Acts 17 and said that you live in the very dwelling place. The boundaries, the times have all been marked by God. So we made this great claim, in fact, that you are in the very area and city and neighborhood and block and street and home that you live in because God has put you there. Not by accident. It's not ultimately that job or that family or that friend or that situation that put you where you are, but that God has sovereignly superintended all things to get you to the very place and the very time that he wants you to be. As an encouragement that that is true, let me tell you what happened on Tuesday of this week for me. So it was good for me as an encouragement to me 
to remind me and to remind us that what we speak about here is not fluff. It's not a preacher's trick, manipulation to get you to feel something or do something. What we proclaim week in and week out is truth from God's Word. That when God says He's put you where He wants you to be, that's because He means that. So on Tuesday of this week, I was sitting outside my apartment complex, sitting on the stoop. Shainu and Hannah had gone to New York for the week. So I'm just sitting outside. I have nothing to do, so I read a book because it's nice weather outside. A neighbor comes who lives directly across the hall. He doesn't live there. His parents live there. He's an older man, but just having a hard time getting on his feet, staying with his folks. So he sits on the steps. He's smoking a cigarette. I'm sitting there reading something. And so I think to myself, this is silly. I, I should probably talk to him. We're, we're sitting on the same stoop. And so I start talking to him. You fast forward an hour and a half, and I have a Bible in my hand, and I'm telling him what it means to be a Christian, how someone goes to heaven. He's telling me, I want to go to heaven if there is a heaven, but I don't think that I'm good enough. And so we talk about Jesus, we talk about sin, we talk about what it means to be a Christian, how none of us are good enough to get to heaven. All of us deserve hell, but Jesus in our place for our sins. And as that conversation was done, one of the things that God encouraged my soul was, do you see that? I have you in the city, in the neighborhood, in the block, in the apartment complex, in the very apartment sitting on the stoop that I want you to be in. Right? This, this conversation was not one that I pursued. It was stumbled into my lap because how awkward would it be to sit there for an hour without saying hello? I, I didn't do anything. God brought someone to me. Right? So each week what we're talking through has incredible truth to bear on our lives. So it's one thing, when we get to chapter 3, it's one thing to say that God loves the city, that God wants the welfare, the peace, the shalom of the city. But the question that chapter 3 is going to push us to ask is, what happens if we go? If we do this, if we go on mission to the city, if we reorient our lives to be for the sake of the city, what happens? Because in chapter 3, what you find is that Jonah now does what God told him to do. He actually goes to the city. And the question that's sort of pushed as we ask this, as we read through this is, so what's going to happen to Nineveh? How are they going to respond? How are they going to receive Jonah and his message? Well, that's what we're looking at this week. We're going to get there in a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at chapter 3 together and see how Nineveh responds. Pray with me. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask again for the power of your Holy Spirit. We do confess that it would be better to say a few words by the power of your Spirit than to speak a million words in our own flesh, trusting in our own reasoning or wisdom. So truly we have gathered and assembled to hear from God. So you speak, you do so even through me, so that as we hear your words, we might repent and that we might turn to God. We pray that you would give us a good prayer for our lives and for our city, that you would change our hearts and our lives according to your word. We pray that you would do great things by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at chapter 3 and see how Jonah responds. Before we get there, let me catch you up on how chapter 2 ends. So in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says that, the Lord spoke to this great fish and he spit Jonah back onto the dry land. So when you come to the end of chapter 2, here's our boy Jonah and he is not looking good, right? He's standing on the seashore, freshly covered in whale vomit. He's been spit back 
He is not a pretty sight, right? What does he look like? What does he smell like? He's standing there in whale puke, and that's when you see Jonah. And so I don't want you to miss one of the ironies of the story. Remember, we've been talking through the story, and we keep seeing that things are not the way you'd expect them to be. Because who is this pathetic display on the seashore? It's not the idol-worshipping pagans from the ship in chapter 1. It's not the idolatrous, wicked, evil city dwellers of chapter 3. The one standing in whale puke who's made a mess of his life is the religious, Bible-thumping, Jesus-fish-bumper-sticker moral guy. That's the one who's made a complete mess and is standing there, this pathetic display so that it, it literally doesn't sit well with you. It, it, it causes you to turn your stomach. I mean, literally, the, the fish has just finished up-chucking Jonah onto the dry land. And it's when you see the pathetic display that Jonah is that chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 become all the more amazing. Because look at what it says in chapter 3, the first two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So maybe you know the story of Jonah well enough that you sort of blow past that, but, but I want you to slow down enough to hear this again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Did you just see what just happened? God calls Jonah a second time. God gives this guy, who's completely blown it the first time, a second chance. Right? How many of us know that God could have easily called anyone else to Nineveh? He could have easily said, I'm not going to kill you, but that's it. You're done. Your life as a prophet is now on the shelf. I'm not risking this again with you. I'll call someone else. In the Old Testament, God used a donkey to speak his message. God could have chosen anyone. And yet he calls Jonah a second time. Right? I read an author this week who said, just think of it this way. If you're a football coach and you've got 15 seconds left and you're at the five-yard line, are you going to hand the ball off to the running back that just fumbled it on the drive before and nearly cost you the game? Or if you're a basketball coach and, and time's run out and you need two free throws hit, are you going to give the ball to Shaq? No, right? Or if you're a businessman and, and you've got your biggest client, are you going to hand him off to the guy that just blew the last sale and nearly tanked the company? You, you might not fire him, but you're surely not going to give him that account. And God does. God calls Jonah a second time saying, Arise. Go to that city that I called you to. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you. I hope that that's an encouragement to us. Because God does that kind of stuff all the time. Right? We've got a, a profile of the kind of guy that God uses. The kind of guy God calls and will display or, or deploy onto mission. So you've got a certain profile of what that guy looks like. Who that guy is like. If it's in the Bible, maybe it's like Peter, the guy who preaches one sermon, 3,000 people convert in one moment. Or, or Paul, the, the church planter on steroids. Wherever he goes, a new church sort of springs up. People just come to faith everywhere he goes. But let me tell you who you don't have a profile for. A guy like Jonah. 
right? Even more locally, if you think about who's used by God, you tend to think it's the professional, the one who's studied, it's the pastor, it's a J, someone else's job. You don't have a profile for a guy like Jonah, a guy who's sinned terribly, made a complete mess of his life, who's not even in the peak season of relationship with God. It'd be one thing if we were reading this story in 2 Kings when Jonah was obeying God and Jonah had gone to Israel and everything happened like Jonah said it would. We're in the season of Jonah's life when he's a mess. In fact, he's not even still altogether there because chapter 4, you're going to see that he fails big time. And yet, God calls, God uses Jonah. And so here's the thing. I think the thing that the scriptures want us to hear, we're going to get to chapter 3 and how Nineveh responds, but I think the first two verses are there so that God can convince you, I do that all the time. That your weakness, your insufficiency, your inadequacy, rather than pushing you away from mission, makes you a prime candidate for mission. Let me say that again because this is not a preacher's trick. I'm telling you, your weakness, your insufficiency, your inadequacy, rather than pushing you away from mission, makes you a prime candidate for mission. Because I'd imagine if Jonah's going to talk to anyone, if he's in his right mind, what would his message be? Not look at how good I am, because I've just been spit out of the fish. It would be, look at how good God is, because I'll tell you the mercy that just visited me. And we think that what qualifies us for mission is so that we could point to our neighbors, look at me now. I'm set apart, I'm different, I've arrived, I'm there. And God wants to say what qualifies you for mission is to be able to say, look at how God is, how good He is. In fact, the only thing I can relate to is how much we both need Him. And if God's mercy has touched down on someone like me, I'd imagine that there's hope for you as well. Your weakness makes you a prime candidate because in that place, God can be hero and you can be really small. You're not showing off your resume. You begin to point to God and how merciful and great He is. It's like one man said, we truly are one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We don't make the bread. We don't produce the bread. We're not the owners of the bread. We are one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. That's why God uses Jonah. And here's the other thing. I think that God calls Jonah a second time because even as God is going to use Jonah through him to the city, God is going to work on Jonah. Right? Even as God is going to take Jonah and send him to the city and wants to bless the city through Jonah, God wants to work on Jonah. Right? God is wise enough to do the both at the same time. That even as he's going to work through you, he wants to work in you and on you. And one of the great things about living a life of mission is that as you do mission, your junk starts coming to the surface. You think that you've been now set apart and God wants to do something through you, but all the while, while he's doing that through you, he wants to work on you and in you. So that as you go on mission, your junk comes to the surface and you begin to see you need the gospel as bad as the city around you. It's only when you go on mission that you begin to see, oh man, I've made a God of comfort and I'm not going to spend my time and I'm not going to have that dinner with that person or, or lose time on the couch because I've got to go out. I, I don't want to lose my money, my time, my comfort. When does that come out? When you're forced by mission, your junk starts coming out. Right? Only when you're on mission do you begin to see, I've got racism 
and elitism and, and this superiority complex in my own heart. Because now God is pushing me to love and relate with and be family with people who don't share my culture or my background, who don't get my jokes, who don't have the same narrative that I have. And it's not easy to just hang with them like it is to hang with people like me. Your junk starts coming to the surface. And God begins to show you that you need the gospel as much as the city that he's sending you to. I think God calls Jonah a second time because while he wants to save Nineveh, he wants to save Jonah. He wants to redeem the city, and in redeeming the city, he wants to save and redeem the missionary. God's called you to Philadelphia because he loves Philly, but, but he loves you while he's chasing Philly. Look at verse 2 to 4. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So now Jonah goes into the city. God's called him. He's actually going to go. And God says to him in verse 2, go tell them the message that I tell you. Right? That's just a quick reminder for us that that's the content we're bringing to the city. Right? I just want you to hear that again. God says to him, go tell them the message I tell you. So Jonah's call is not to be creative or to come up with something new or some hidden oracle or some secret wisdom. Jonah's call is to stick as closely as he can to the message God wants to give to the city. Right? So, so when we go to the city, your job is not to be hip or fresh or cool. It's not to come up with something no one's thought of. It's to tell the old, old, old story and to tell it faithfully and to tell it well. So Jonah goes into the city and he says this, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's what Jonah does. Jonah preaches the worst sermon you have ever heard. Right? I work for hours upon hours each week on sermons, crafting every line, trying to fit every phrase, trying to make sure that I'm preaching the Bible well, making sure that I tell this thing well, teach well. Jonah goes in with an eight-word sermon. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's actually just five words. He goes into the meanest, baddest, nastiest city in the world, and he's got five words. In English, it's yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let me tell you who Jonah is, because you've seen Jonah before. Jonah is the guy who's standing at the street corner in the middle of the city, standing sometimes on a crate, megaphone in hand, with that cardboard sign that says something like, the world is going to end, repent, or judgment is coming, turn to God, the end is near, God hates America, something like that, and then he's screaming out, megaphone in hand, or at the top of his lungs. How do you react to that guy? You walk past him, you ignore him, you wish he wasn't there, you think in your mind how insane he is, you know he's not fully there, right? Or you gather some friends together and you try not to chuckle. How does Nineveh respond to Jonah's cardboard sign? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Nineveh should have seen Jonah with his eight-word cardboard sign, and they should have laughed at him, they should have ignored him, they should have mocked him, or worse, they should have just gotten rid of him, 
right? What would, what would you expect if a Jew walked into Nazi Germany and held up a cardboard sign that said, 40 days and Berlin will be overthrown? He's gone into the baddest, nastiest, vilest, most wicked city. The city we, we said last week hung human skins on the wall as just a, a threat to its enemies. And he's got this cardboard sign. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then verse 5 says, and they believed God. This is why, again, I'm saying to you, nobody reads Jonah 3 and goes, wow, Jonah's amazing. You read Jonah 3 and you go, God is incredible. He took Jonah, who probably still smelled like the fish, gone into the city, preaches the worst sermon in the world, and the entire city believes God. And God's the one behind it because that's what they say. It's, it's interesting. The text doesn't say, and the city believed Jonah. It says they believed God. That somehow through his sermon, they saw that this was God speaking so that they fast. They put on sackcloth and they repent. I'll take a two-second tangent because I have a prayer request for you. As I've been thinking about this, one prayer request is this. You have to come in week in and week out and you have to hear 40 to 45 minutes of preaching. One thing every week that I'd plead with you, at some point in your week, pray for the preachers that fill this pulpit. Pray that the Holy Spirit and God's power would be on them because I'm telling you, it would be better to hear five words with God's power than 45 minutes of man's wisdom. Right? What would happen if you prayed week in and week out that the Spirit would fill the preacher who's going to preach to you that week? so that you would hear words from God. Because five words from God can bring a city to its knees where hours of man's wisdom can't do that. So you pray for that. And in verses 6 through 9, it begins to unpack how this spread throughout the city. Verse 5, you've got this high-level look at what happens throughout the whole city. 6 through 9, you get it in detail. Here's what happens. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Okay, I'll tell you that for me, some people have a hard time with Jonah because of chapter 2. They go, toss that book out. How are you going to explain that a man lives in a fish? I have no problem with chapter 2. God raised Jesus from the dead. I just figure he can do stuff like chapter 2. He can make the fish thing happen. You know what's hard for me to believe? Chapter 3. How does a guy go into a city, speak five words, so that revival breaks out in the whole city? I mean, do you see how big this is, how far it spreads? It says from the greatest of them to the least, everybody, so that word reaches even the kings here himself, the most powerful man in Nineveh. Think of that. You've got at least 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, if not more. A city that for 
weeks and months and years and decades and centuries had been committed to violence and wickedness and idolatry and adultery, a city filled with evil people, violent people, murders, theft, adultery. How is it that in one moment the whole city turns to God? Right? How gadol, that word we've been saying, right? This gadol city, how gadol is this change? So that every street corner and every man, from the commoner to the king, from the peasant to the prince, even man and beast, everybody in the city is turning to God. So that repentance and revival sweeps over the city. Right? Remember we said that in Jonah you've got 48 verses. Every word is used sparingly. No extra words are thrown out. And yet, the author spends a great deal of time for you to see what happens. Did you see the scene? The king trades his throne for a heap of ashes, trades his robes for sackcloth, and issues a proclamation throughout the whole land that everyone is to feast. Even, even your pets and your animals, everybody's fasting. Nobody's eating, nobody's drinking water, nothing. Because everyone's turning to God. The city repents. I mean, just think of that. This doesn't happen in some small town along the Bible Belt. Right? This is not Gath Hefer, Jonah's hometown, some suburb outside of Jerusalem. This is bright lights, cosmopolitan, metropolitan, wicked, sin city, Nineveh. How does that happen? Why does that happen? I read one author this week who said, do you remember Saul who becomes Paul? So if you read the New Testament, there's this guy named Saul who's the worst sinner around. In fact, in 1 Timothy, after he becomes a Christian, he says, God saved me, the chief of the sinners, so that God might have an example for all who would believe. So here's what Saul says. Saul says, God saved me because I was the worst sinner and God could put me on his trophy case and show the whole world if he could change Saul, he could change anybody. Right? Saul said, I was converted so that I could be on God's display shelf so that the whole world could know you're never going to be so bad because God saved Saul. And I think that's the same thing that happens in Nineveh. I think God picks the baddest, meanest, nastiest, vilest, most wicked city in the known world to say, look at my display case. Check out my trophies. If I change Nineveh, Philadelphia is no problem. I think he picked the worst city in the known world to say, if I could do it there, I could do it anywhere. Right? So if you would let your mind dream for a second and inform your prayers, what would we pray this week? Wouldn't we pray, God, would you send gospel-centered missional churches throughout the city of Philadelphia so that a few years from now or months from now or whenever you see fit, every block of this city would have a gospel-centered missional Christian family or man or woman who's going to be on mission to this city so that word spreads from the, the bum in the city to Mayor Nutter's office so that from South Philly to North Philly to West Philly to the Northeast God's revival breaks out in the city the entire climate of this place changes wouldn't you pray for a gadol change in our city? Because what happens in Nineveh is they repent. They repent. And you begin to see this repentance on sort of two levels. You've got it at this macro level in verse 5, the whole city. 
And then in verses 6 through 9, you've got it at this micro level, how it's fleshed out individually. Right? Hear that again. In verse 5, you've got macro level repentance, the whole city. In verses 6 through 9, you've got micro level, how it's fleshed out individually. Because one of the questions that I think Jonah 3 is going to make us ask is, what does repentance look like? If it's going to happen in the city, macro, it's got to start with individuals, micro. So we've got to ask, what is repentance? And what I want you to see is Jonah 3 gives you a good look at what repentance is. Because when you look at Jonah 3, you're going to see what God desires from us as individuals so that the whole city might be changed. What does repentance really look like? And I want to talk through that for a minute because we throw around the word repentance all the time, not really sure of what we're throwing around. So in studying and reading, before I tell you what repentance is, as you see it in Nineveh, let me just tell you briefly what repentance is not. So hear this. What repentance is not. Let me give you some marks of counterfeit or false or fake repentance. For one, repentance is not just confession. Hear that. Repentance is not just confession. So sometimes we think that what it means to repent is to say, I'm sorry. So if you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, my bad, I won't do it again, you've repented. And the scriptures say it's not less than that, but it is more than that. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. Because one of the weirdest things that you find is the guy who says sorry has to say sorry again and again and again. Because repentance is not just confession, it's more than that. Because if it's not accompanied by change, you know that you haven't hit repentance. Right? We say sorry all the time. And yet the scriptures are saying if there's not fruit that accompanies that confession, it's not real. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, there's a kind of worldly sorrow that leads to death, not to repentance. Right? There's a worldly sorrow where you go, I'm sorry, you, you shed your tears, and yet nothing changes. In fact, you see worldly sorrow on your TV all the time. I heard a, a preacher named Mark Driscoll this week say that our culture, our world, has worldly sorrow all the time. He called it pagan confessions. So, for example, if you, if you know about Catholic confession, what do you do? You go to a confession booth, you say your confession to a priest, he absolves you, you walk out. Our culture is not necessarily a Christian one, but we've got our own version of pagan confession. So, think about the last celebrity that fell. Just come to mind, right? Adultery, scandal, cotton, a bunch of cheating, whatever it was. What happened? His publicist told him what clothes to wear at the press conference, usually a dark color, something subdued, so that it doesn't show flashy and he looks repentant. That's modern-day sackcloth. He goes into an interview studio, which serves as his confession booth. He gets a pagan priest, Larry King, Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer, somebody to hear his confession. He sheds tears, talks about how wrong he was, the priest will even say words of absolution to absolve him from his sin. And then we, the viewers, sort of stand as God. And we figure, yes, I will forgive him. Or we go, no, that wasn't sincere enough. I don't forgive them. You've got a whole system of confession that has nothing to do with repentance because worldly sorrow minus God does not produce repentance. The scriptures say, do you want to know if, if confession is real, if repentance is real? Throughout the Gospels, over and over again, it says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
right? We find all kinds of evidence to see whether our repentance was real. So we, we try to evaluate, was my heart sorry enough? Was the prayer long enough? Did I repent fast enough? And the scriptures say the only evidence for real repentance is fruit. What happens? What happens after you pray that prayer? If you don't change, it's not real repentance. So false repentance is merely confessional. Real repentance is also not self-centered. Here's what I mean. We repent all the time for our sake. We'll say sorry to people. We'll say sorry to God. Why? Because I feel awful. I feel shameful. I feel frustrated. I'm disappointed with my performance. I need to get rid of this ucky feeling. And so I'll repent. I'll say whatever you need me to say. Right? We do that all the time. It's not like David, what he says in Psalm 51, after he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. What does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. He's not saying, God, make me feel better. He's saying, God, I wrecked this relationship I have with you. Make me right. Restore me. Don't cast me away from your presence. It is entirely God-centered and says, my relationship with you is a mess. Fix me. Make me right. It's not self-centered. It's God-centered. I'll tell you one more thing. Repentance is not. Repentance is not religious. Repentance is not religious. If you read Psalm 78, there's these words where God sends discipline to Israel because they keep sinning and they keep sinning and they keep sinning. And in verses 36 through 37, they actually turn to God and they pray prayers and they repent and they earnestly seek God. And then in the following verses, the immediate next verses, God says, I don't want to hear your flattery because your heart is not here. And he says, I reject it all. In fact, listen to the words of Amos 5, what God says to his people. Just hear this. He says to these people that have come to him to worship him, he says, I hate, hear that, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. That, that would be like God says to an assembly like this, I hate when you come to church. Think of that. God is saying to people who repent religiously, I hate when you come to church. I hate when you put stuff in that basket. I hate your offerings. I take no delight in the noise of your songs. I don't care for the sounds of your guitars. I hate when you come together. Because religious repentance is all about words that are not connected to the heart. And God hates all of that. So then what is real repentance? Nineveh shows us. I, wanna, I want you to look through this. Nineveh shows us what real repentance is. Nineveh shows us first, it's this sorrow for sin. It's this sorrow for sin. Do you see how Nineveh responds? They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. They sit in ashes. The king gets down low. He even acknowledges that they're evil and wicked in their hands. He is brought low, humble, penitent, contrite, broken, sorrowful. Sorrow. There's a, a sorrow for sin. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. 
Paul writes this letter in Corinthians, and when the people get the letter, they're sort of weeping. And Paul says, I'm not happy that I made you weep. But then he says, I am really happy that your weeping brought you to repentance and brought you to salvation because there's a godly sorrow for sin that leads to salvation. Do you know that the Puritans, the first ones who came here, they used to pray for the gift of tears. They used to literally cry out and go, God, our hearts are so hard. We won't weep or mourn over sin. Would you give us the gift of tears? Would you break our hearts over the things that break your hearts? There's a godly sorrow. Another mark of real repentance, they turn to God. Do you see what happens in Nineveh? Verse 5, they believe God. In the proclamation that the king sends out, he says, everyone is to call out mightily to God. At the end of verse 9, he says, who knows, maybe God will turn from his fierce wrath. Their prayers are to God. Their hope is in God. They turn to God. They believe in God. Everything about this is Godward in direction. This is not just, we feel bad, God, so we're going to just turn to you. This is Godward. They turn to God. And as they turn to God, they turn away from sin. Do you hear that? In, in the end of verse 8 or 9, he, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So much so that in verse 10, God says, he saw that they turned from their evil. This is not just we turn to God, but as they turn to God, they turn from sin. Right? It's not like Israel, which is we pray prayers and we do religious things. It's as we're doing that, we turn away from our sin. We turn away from our sin. Think of that. If my sin is here and God is there, then for me to turn to God necessarily requires me to do what? Turn from sin. I can't turn direction without turning away from the thing that I left. You can't turn from God or turn to God without simultaneously turning away from your sin. Repentance will always be accompanied by change. I'm not saying we won't struggle with sin. We can preach on that another time. What I am saying is repentance that has just the same prayer said with the same sins over and over again without change is not real. But Nineveh shows that repentance is godly sorrow, a turning to God, a turning away from sin. We could say more, but I want to close. Here's what I want you to notice as we wrap up. Everything we learned about repentance, who did we learn it from? Just ask that for a second. Everything we just learned about repentance throughout the book of Jonah, who do we learn it from? The very striking thing about the book of Jonah is everything you're going to learn about repentance, you learn it from the pagans and not from the prophet. In fact, as you read the four chapters of Jonah, what keeps striking out to you is everybody everywhere is repenting except one guy. The only guy you never hear say, I'm sorry for my sin, I turn to you God. The only guy who doesn't repent in Jonah is Jonah. In chapter 1, the idol-worshipping pagans turn to God on the ship. In chapter 3, the idol-worshipping pagans in the city turn to God in Nineveh. The only guy who misses it is Jonah. And it's like the book is sort of pushing us to go, when is the prophet going to repent? When's the religious guy going to repent? 
When is the guy gathered with the assembly, the Bible believer, the Jesus fish bumper sticker guy, when is he going to repent? Because everyone everywhere gets it. Even the cattle are fasting. But Jonah will not repent. He doesn't get it. The city gets it. Everyone gets it. Except for Jonah. And when you fast forward a couple of hundred pages, a couple of hundred years to the New Testament, you know what you find? Jesus saying, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the gluttons, the drunkards, they all get it, but the religious want to kill me. Isn't that the weirdest thing? You fast forward a couple of hundred years, another prophet from near Nazareth comes, and he speaks this message, and everybody gets it, except the religious. The whores come to him, the tax collectors come to him, everybody, but the religious cry out, crucify him. In fact, Jesus will even tell a story and he'll say, two men went into a temple to pray. One a religious Pharisee, one a scummy tax collector. And by the end of the story, he says, you want to know what repentance looks like? Look at the second guy and not the first. Because they get it. The question of Jonah is, when is the prophet going to repent? And it's almost like it's pushing us to ask, we're going to pray for revival in the city. In the first week, we said that's one of our prayers. But as we pray that, you know what a huge prayer is? When is going to repentance going to start here among us? If there's going to be macro level big change in the city, it's got to start with micro level change among us, starting with you. And Jonah's asking, you want the city to change. I agree. But when does that start with us? And more particularly, when will that start with you? When will it start with you where you beg God for godly sorrow? to mourn over your sins, where you turn to God and in doing so turn away from your sin. Before Mayor Nutter hears of it and revival breaks out in every street corner of our city, I think Jonah's asking, when will it start at Seven Mile Road with the religious here and then break out into our city? Look at how the story ends. The last verse. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he would, said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God looks at this city, he sees them repent, and he relents. He turns from the wrath he was going to pour on them, and he relents. I want you to just think about this. Nineveh has been sin, sinning for days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries of sin. They fast and mourn for a few days, less than 40, we know that much. They fast and, and pray for a few days, they repent, and God wipes the whole slate clean. The whole thing, just completely gone. Centuries of sin, they give one baby look to Jesus, to God, and God forgives the whole city. In fact, when you get to Jonah 4, as we will in the next few weeks, that's Jonah's main complaint. Jonah basically screams out to God, God, you are such a softy. Right? That's his, that's his complaint. This wicked city, the nastiest people on earth, give you one look and you'll just let go of the whole thing. You're such a softy. In fact, one pastor said it perfectly. He said, tell me, is God a conservative or a liberal? 
right? Because you read Jonah 1 and it says God's going to come and he's going to smite the city 40 days. This thing is going to be overthrown. So God looks like a right-wing, religious, fundamentalist, moralist God. And then you get to chapter 3 and they give one look in God's direction and God says, I forget the whole thing. Just, just let it all go. We'll just pretend that 40 days never happened. And Jonah wants to say, you bleeding heart liberal, right? You care for everything about the city. In fact, 4 verse 11 says, you care for the cattle, the, the economy, the welfare. You're, you're a bleeding heart liberal. And I think Jonah wants to ask, don't you get it yet? Jesus, God, the gospel, this isn't conservative or liberal. This isn't right-wing, left-wing. This is not religion or irreligion. This is not morality or immorality. The gospel is altogether something different. It's a God who is completely holy and hates sin and will overthrow men, women, and cities where sin exists. But a God who is so merciful and compassionate, He overthrew His Son rather than you. Overthrew His Son for your sake. Poured all His wrath upon Jesus so that you and your church and your city might be saved. To all who repent who mourn over their sin and turn to God and turn away from sin, God looks at you with incredible liberal mercy. So then, let us pray that repentance would bring, begin here and go from here to our city. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a few moments to just pray. You can deal with God in the quietness of your own heart. After that, I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll come to the Lord's table in communion. Our great God, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come lowly, we come humbly. God, give us grace to come repentantly. Father, I ask that you would give to Seven Mile Road the gift of repentance. As your gospel went out in the New Testament, the apostles kept saying, it has been granted to the Gentiles to repent of sins. We don't produce this in ourselves. You have to do it in us. And so we pray with the Puritans before us, give to our people, the men and women gathered in this assembly, the gift of tears. Cause them to mourn over their sin not to brush past it with a quick I'm sorry, but to sit in it, to consider that we've broken relationship with you. We hide it through our religion so we offer empty words that you hate. We sing songs we don't mean. We assemble with saints whilst nurturing sin in our own hearts. We have no intention of changing, but we put on a display for you and the others around you thinking that we fooled man and God. We have not fooled you. You see our hearts. Oh God, break hard-hearted men and women today. Break addictions that we've made peace with and make us at war with them. break habitual sin that we return to over and over again like a pig returns to its vomit. Cause us to mourn our sins. Help us to turn to You. 
to not in this moment resolve to do better as though the strength lies in our own hands, but to turn to God, to believe us to be what we are, powerless, impotent, unable, inadequate, insufficient, but to see the Gospel as able, that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners, that on the cross we were crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us, that we have died to the old man and are now new creations in Christ. We're not working for this. This is what you have made of us. We are no longer obligated to sin, slaves to sin, Romans 6 says, but we are now slaves to righteousness, that our obligation is now to you because you have made this happen the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us and gives us New Testament Jesus' power to rise up over our sins. So that when we fall to sin, that would be abnormal because that's no longer who we are. Jesus Christ has made us new. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have been dead to sin, alive to God, so that now we can put sin to death and mortify the misdeeds of the body. The same members that we once used for things that we are now ashamed of, Romans 6, we can now use as members for obedience that leads to glorification, sanctification, glory to God. Lawlessness led us to more lawlessness, Romans 6, but now we can live in obedience that leads to sanctification. Help us to turn to God. And in doing so, help us to turn away from sin. Belief first, behavior second, but let our belief affect our behavior. Today you can cleanse us. Today you can renew us and cause us to repent and turn away from sin. You can cause us to leave aside the sin, Hebrews 13, that so closely clings to us and the weight that hinders us, and we can run with perseverance to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Help us to run with perseverance to Jesus, laying aside the weights that hinder and the sin that so closely clings to us. Create in us a new heart. Give us a right spirit. Do not cast us from your presence, but give us an upright spirit, a, a, a sustaining spirit that will hold us. Let your spirit produce repentance among us even this day. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.